Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning. So glad they chose to worship with us this morning. Hey, we're going to be in Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, in the seat back pockets, you can turn to page 59. Otherwise, your own Bible or Bible on your smartphone is fine as well. As Jacob said, I am Pastor Adam. I serve here as the small group's pastor. It's my joy to be able to, to bring God's word this morning. Before we dive into the passage this morning, I'll let you know that today's passage and message aren't necessarily joyful, but I promise you that they are hopeful by the end of it. Again, so glad you chose to worship with us this morning. If you are comfortable and able, I would ask that we stand for the reading of God's word. And we do this, we position our bodies to ready our hearts to hear from the Lord. So let's stand before his word. Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thanks for obliging me for a little bit. Do you ever feel like you're under attack? Like life is just one hardship after another, one moment of struggle after another? Because I imagine that this is how the Israelites would have felt in this moment. God had just barely rescued them out of Egypt. They faced a lack of food and water, and though the Lord did provide for them, they're now being attacked by a different people group than the ones who had oppressed them for over 400 years. We are all either going into a time of suffering, in the midst of a time of suffering, or coming out of a time of suffering. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you can't. If you can't, then just wait a little bit. Something will happen in your life. This experience of hardship and struggle is one that I have pastored people through over the years, but there's one situation in particular that comes to mind for me. It's 2018, I'm in the middle of my three-year program to get my master's in biblical counseling, and I'm simultaneously leading a grief share program, a grief share session, which is a program to walk with people through their grief in the midst of losing a loved one. I'm well-versed in the content of Grief Share. I've had classes on how to walk with people in the midst of their grief, and we're about two to three weeks into this 13-week journey. And at some point during the evening, the discussion turns to tears, as it often does in this sort of environment. Only this time, it was different. There was no amount of training, no amount of preparation that I could have done to prepare me for what was going to happen next. All of a sudden, one of the women in the group begins to cry in a way that I've never heard somebody cry before. I can only describe it as wailing, this mixture of pain and anger and grief that goes on for what feels like forever, and all the rest of us can do in this moment is sit there and wait and be with her. You see, this woman and her husband sitting next to her had recently lost 
their eight-month-old son to a congenital heart disease. And it wasn't until after he had passed away and they were talking with the doctors, they began to sort of put the pieces together and realize it was the exact same disease that took the life of their firstborn son when he was just five days old. There was literally nothing they could do except sit and wait and watch and pray. And I wasn't a parent at the time, so I couldn't necessarily put myself in their shoes, but now that my wife and I have a 14-month-old daughter, I cannot imagine losing her, let alone a second child. And this isn't to mention that within the next two years, each the husband and wife would go on to lose a parent. In my 10 years of working in the church, if there's anybody that I have pastored that has a reason to doubt the goodness of God, it is this couple. So what does their story have to do with our passage this morning? On the surface, it might seem like they're worlds apart, but while the Israelites' battle with the Amalekites was a very real physical battle for them at a particular moment in history, it's also representative of the greater cosmic battle between God and Satan. But let's back up for a second. Who are the Amalekites, and why are they attacking attacking the Israelites? They are descendants of Amalek, who is a grandson of Esau, and the Israelites are descendants of Jacob, the brother of Esau. If you remember our sermon series in the book of Genesis a couple years ago, you might remember the animosity that existed between these two brothers and how Jacob convinced Esau to give him his birthright and he convinced Isaac, their father, who's the son of Abraham, convinced him to give his blessing to continue the covenant that God promised Abraham that he would have many sons, i.e. the Israelites. He gave it to Jacob instead of his firstborn son, Esau. And so the Israelites' battle with the Amalekites is really just this reiteration of the battle of the struggle between Jacob and Esau, going further back between Cain and Abel, going further back between God and Satan in the garden in Genesis 3. But it also points forward to the struggle between the Israelites and Babylon and the church in the world today. This particular battle is an image of the battle that has been waged since sin entered the world and still rages on today. It's a battle for our soul for who we will depend on and in whom we will place our trust. Ultimately, it's a battle for who we will trust to tell us who we are. Like the Israelites, we are under attack, and as followers of Jesus, our experience in life is threefold, that of saint, sufferer, and sinner. If you remember last week, Frank talked about three reasons why we might experience difficult seasons in our lives, even as, even as Christians. And he said we experience hard seasons because we live in a fallen world. We're sufferers. Because of self-infliction, we're sinners. And because God is refining us through testing, we're saints. In this passage, we see an instance of the Israelites being sufferers. If we jump ahead to Deuteronomy 25, we get a glimpse of how and when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 18, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So although the Israelites had been fed and given water directly from God, they are still exhausted from their journey out of Egypt. And this is when the Amalekites attacked them. Not only this, they attacked those at the back, the weak and the stragglers. The Amalekites' attack on the Israelites was a cowardly sneak attack. And this should remind us of something. What does the writer of Genesis say about how the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the garden? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent goes on to use trickery and deception to twist God's words and get Adam and Eve to believe a lie. You can follow along with me on the screen. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, he being the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan didn't fear God. He entered into the garden and provoked Adam and Eve to not take God at his word. The Amalekites performed a sneak attack on the Israelites when they were faint and weary. My friends who lost their children and parents were blindsided by death. This battle has been raging on for many years and the enemy's tactics are always the same. To get us to believe a lie that God cannot be trusted and he does not have our good in mind. I would imagine that this is how the Israelites felt. So what does this mean for us today? In 2023 in Milwaukee, what does this tangibly mean for us? First, it's important to realize that we are in a battle. There are very real spiritual rulers and authorities who are committed to thwarting God's will in our life. And we see this in the situation with the Israelites, and we see it in our own lives today. When things come at us, our tendency is to doubt God's goodness toward us. So we can and we must fight the battle. There is not a choice here. Sure, you can pretend for a little bit, but I promise you, a crisis, a tragedy, something will happen and life will come crumbling down. Like I said earlier, we're all either going into a season of difficulty, in the midst of a season of difficulty, or coming out of a season of difficulty. This is not a pessimistic outlook on life by any means. It is a right understanding of our reality living in a fallen world. So back to the battle between Israel and the Amalekites. As we continue in our Exodus series, we're going to see time and time again in which the Israelites come up against people groups on their way to the promised land that they engage in war with or are blocking them from where they're going. And the question I've often had that other people have often had is how could God lead the Israelites to do this? How could God lead the Israelites to take up the sword and kill the Amalekites. It's almost like there's some sort of discrepancy or like God has forgotten that the Israelites are to be a blessing and a representative to the entire world. But I hope to share some things that will hopefully put this tension to rest for us. First, Israel is not the attacking force. Amalek and his army are the ones who not only attacked the Israelites first, but they did so in a cowardly, cowardly fashion by attacking those at the back, the most vulnerable of the group. In addition to that, the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They're fresh out of there. Their weapons are likely just objects that they've haphazardly bound together to serve as weapons. The Israelites are underdogs in self-defense mode. Secondly, by attacking the Israelites, the Amalekites are coming up against the one true God, and the Lord is simply protecting his people from yet another oppressor. So if the Israelites had to fight back, how do we fight back today? I believe that the Israelites and Moses' battle plan is our battle plan as well. And there's a human side to that battle plan and a divine side to that battle plan. And God's action is the foundation upon which their battle is fought. And there are three components to their battle plan. Prayer, community, and story. Let's take each one in turn. So first, divine intervention, the action of God on their and our behalf. The foundation of, Israelites, of the Israelites in our battle is the action of God intervening in our life. In drawing the Israelites out of Egypt, the Israelites did not have to do anything. God is the one who brought the ten plagues on Egypt on their behalf. And when they were trapped between the Red Sea, notice what Moses says to them. Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord brought the Egyptians through the Red Sea 
sorry, the Israelites through the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptians in it. The Lord did all the work in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, but now they must join him in securing their survival in the battle against the Amalekites. This time, they did have to stand and fight. They had to work out their salvation. Freedom from Egypt is just the beginning of the journey for the Israelites. Just as the day that we placed our faith in Christ for salvation from sin and death was the beginning of our journey with God. Salvation and conversion are not the touchdown of the Christian life. They are the kickoff. Exodus tells us that freedom isn't the end, but the beginning. And since the Exodus story is our story, we can learn from how the Israelites learned to walk with God and walk in a new way of life on their way to the promised land. As we study the book of Exodus, we get the opportunity to learn from what the Israelites got right, but also from what they got wrong. And today we happen to get to learn from what they got right. So I mentioned that this battle is representative of the battle all the way back to Genesis 3 with the serpent. And notice what Adam and, De- Adam and Eve did after being deceived by the serpent and sinning. They covered themselves with fig leaves and they ran and hid from God. But what did Israelites and Moses do? They faced the battle head on and they ran directly to God asking him for help. The Israelites had to learn how to live into this new way of life and so do we. We've been rescued by God from our Egypt because of Jesus' death on the cross, but that is not the end of the story. Jesus also rose to life, and because of his life, the one he's living today, right now, this morning, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in the New Testament makes a claim that we, quote, shall be saved. Ongoing, progressive future. There is work to be done alongside God in our walk with Christ, just as there was work for the Israelites to do alongside God in their journey to the promised land. And this work is depicted through the three components of their battle plan against the Amalekites, prayer, community, and story. So, first, prayer. I am what I would consider an apathetic perfectionist. If I can't do something the right way or be good at something right away, why even start? It's not worth it. Even when I sense I might be good at something, I'm very slow to get started, and this has found its way into my prayer life. I just mentioned that when the Israelites got attacked, they faced the battle head on, ran towards God asking for his help. But if I'm honest, my first inclination during hard times is not to run to God, but to try to seize control of a situation. Oftentimes, my own anger, frustration, apathy can, get me, can keep me from going to God in prayer, but also my laziness. I just simply don't want to muster up the energy that, ta- that it takes to go to God in prayer. But when I dig below the surface of all those reasons not to pray, I'm confronted with the reality that I still have a bit of unbelief in me, that prayer doesn't actually do anything. I wonder if you can relate. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says this about cynicism and prayer. The glib way people talk about prayer often reinforces our cynicism. We end our conversations with, I'll keep you in my prayers. We have a vocabulary of prayer speak, including I'll lift you up in prayer and I'll remember you in prayer. Many who use these phrases, including us, never get around to praying. Why? Because we we don't think prayer makes much difference. And if I'm honest with myself, that sounds a lot like me. You know what? I think that's okay. Because just like the Israelites are learning how to live a new way of life with God, I am still learning how to work out my salvation. Every single one of us in this room are learning how to work out our own salvation. I am not yet who I want to become. Now let me be clear. I know that prayer matters and that it makes a difference. I've seen it in my life, in the life of my friends and those I've prayed for. I just struggle to believe it sometimes. 
But even in the midst of that struggle, I've discovered there's just one rule to prayer. Show up. Show up time and time again and meet with God. We see this in our passage this morning. Verses 9 through 13. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. From this passage, I want to draw our attention to three principles of prayer. The first principle is that prayer changes God's action in history. Prayer changes God's action in history. Regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of the tension between God being in complete control of things and humanity's free will, this passage makes clear that without us praying, there is potential that things will not happen as they should. Look at verses 11 to 13. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I could be wrong, but it really seems like the author of Exodus is telling us that if Moses had not prayed, Israel would have been defeated that day. God wants us to join him in his efforts to bring about his kingdom in the world, and he makes clear that there is power in prayer. As Christians, from this passage, it almost seems like we have a moral responsibility to pray. The question is, what won't happen if we don't pray? I don't say this as a guilt trip, but as a form of encouragement and conviction, as followers of Jesus, our prayers have power to affect what takes place in the world, not because of who we are, but because of who God is and by his power. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean we are pushing God around, manipulating what he will or won't do. It's more like we're joining God in the work he's already doing, and he simply invites us along for the ride to grow in our trust in him. This is often referred to as the middle voice, and I love what Pastor Tyler Staten says about the middle voice. Prayer and spirituality feature participation. The complex participation of God and the human, his will and ours. We do not abandon ourselves to the stream of grace and drown in the ocean of love, losing identity. We do not pull strings that activate God's operations in our lives, subjecting God to our assertive identity. We neither manipulate God, active voice, nor are manipulated by God, passive voice. We are involved in the action and participate in its results, but do not control or define it. Middle voice. Prayer takes place in the middle voice. Secondly, prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Moses, lifting his hands up in prayer with the staff, literally turned the tide of the battle. And when we return to God in prayer, we're fighting a war on two fronts. The war in our hearts and the greater spiritual war of God's kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. When we habituate turning to God as a first response to hardships in our life, and we are training and reminding our hearts and minds that God is trustworthy. Additionally, when we pray, we're letting the spiritual rulers and authorities against God know that they have already been defeated. Third, prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. When we turn to God in prayer time and time again, we become people for whom it is natural to release control of a situation. 
Over time, we don't feel the need to have our way and we become okay with what God has intentioned. And while prayer can definitely come in the form of God answering our prayers, taking action in our life, it equally comes in the form of God reforming us away from anxious control and toward being people of love. So again, those three principles of prayer. One, prayer changes God's action in history. Two, prayer is spiritual warfare. And three, prayer changes us. Now there's one more aspect of, prayer, of, of Moses praying that I'd like to draw our attention to, which is his bodily posture. Now remember, the book of Exodus is believed to have been written by Moses. And as we've been following along, we've seen time and time again in which Moses has directly interacted with God through conversation. But in this passage, we don't read of any conversation between God and Moses. Instead, we just see a bodily posture of prayer and surrender to God. So sometimes in the most dire of situations, that is all we can muster. In other times, words are not enough to express our heart and our dependence on God. Taking on a bodily posture, such as raising our hands, getting on our knees, or laying down before God can be more effective than words at times. And putting our bodies in a position of dependence on God can affect our heart's receptiveness to God. We can lead with our bodies to ready our hearts. When you don't have words to pray, when your heart's not in it, know that raising your hands, getting on your knees, or laying down before God is enough. He sees you. The second component in the Israelites' battle plan is that of community. I would define community as being in relationship with like-minded followers of Jesus. Let's go back to our passage, verses 9 through 12. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses... Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. If Moses wouldn't have prevailed in dependence and prayer by keeping his hands up, the Israelites would have lost the battle. But he wasn't alone. If Aaron and Hur Hur hadn't supported Moses, the Israelites also would have lost the battle. There is power in community and allowing others to come alongside us because God himself is a community in the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as people created in his image, we were created to need one another. But our current culture tells us the complete opposite. Our society pushes rampant individualism and this pursuit to be you, whatever that means. We all have a tendency to want to be unique and independent and self-sufficient. And we've believed the lie that we're more authentic and true to ourselves when we distance ourselves and throw off the constraints of finding identity in the people group that we're a part of. What's the first thing you ask someone after you find out their name when you first meet them? What do you do, right? In our modern world, we tend to view ourselves and others based on what we do rather than who we are. In our modern world, we're we're free to determine what's best for us and mark out our own authentic path. We don't think about there being a God who wants a relationship with us or a very real spiritual enemy who wants to thwart that relationship. And so how do we fight against the individualism of our day and allow community to be a part of our battle plan against the hardships that are sure to come? We do this by inviting people into our life and allowing them to speak truth and life into into us. By allowing them to come alongside us and support us physically through physical means, but also spiritually through prayer and interceding for us. 
Now, I only get a couple of times as a small group pastor each year to actually preach. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to push small groups a little bit. And so in a month in September, when small group registration opens up, I want to encourage you, get into a small group. There should be 40 to 50 small groups, if not more, spread across Milwaukee, different times, different days of the week. You should be able to find a group that works for you. I can't encourage you enough to check that out. Because being in community with other believers on a regular, weekly basis offers us encouragement and conviction and shapes us into people of love. At the same time, I need to be honest. At first, it's okay to just show up. Maybe not engage that much. Maybe you're closed off a little bit. But if we're to experience the full benefit of being in community with others, we have to be willing to let our guard down. We have to be willing to be vulnerable, to let people truly know us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the first part of the battle plan is prayer. The second is community. The third and final part of the battle plan for the Israelites and us is story. Every night when my wife and I put our daughter, Cora, down for bed, we have a habit, a routine of reading one to two books. She normally selects which books she wants to read. And Cora, if you're upstairs watching, this is for you. Uh, But this is one of the books that she chooses. It's a kid's illustrated version of Psalm 23. So we're going to go back to children's ministry a little bit, and we're going to read this together this morning. God is my shepherd, and I am his little lamb. He feeds me, he guides me. He looks after me. I have everything I need. Inside, my heart is very quiet, as quiet as lying still in soft green grass in a meadow by a little stream. Even when I walk through the dark, scary, lonely places, I won't be afraid because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me. He makes me strong and brave. He is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me, everything I ever dreamed of. He fills my heart so full of happiness, I can't hold it all inside. Wherever I go, I know God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love will go to. Now, I am fully aware that this is a very colorful book, and she probably likes it because there's pretty pictures and stuff like that. But also, when we first started reading it, she would point to Jesus and then point to my face and go back and forth like I was not. But I'm very thankful that she sees me as her shepherd in some form or another. Um, So while I'm fully aware that that's probably the reason she likes the book. It's still doing something to her on a soul level. Day in and day out, reading that book is shaping her to the truth of the Bible and to the knowledge of God's presence with her. She will know that she is a part of God's story and it will affect her not only her view of herself, but her view of God, of others, and of the world. It is shaping her. But it's also shaping us. My wife has the book memorized at this point. She could probably recite it for you without actually looking at it. We are storied creatures, and we live by the narratives we believe, whether or not we recognize it. And although we have Genesis and all of Exodus recorded before this point, Moses tells us for the first time that God has given clear direction to write down the memory of how God has defeated and will completely destroy Amalek. Look at verses 14 to 16 of our passage this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. If we were to continue our study after Exodus into the rest of the Old Testament, we'd get to Numbers and Deuteronomy and beyond, and we would find well over 20 times in which the Lord is calling the Israelites to remember. Remember what the Lord did to Egypt and all of its inhabitants. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness. Remember how you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord redeemed you. Constant calls to remember what the Lord has done. It is through knowing, telling, and retelling the story of God, the story that we're a part of, that we fight our battles. There is no formation without repetition. And when we memorize the story of God, we are quite literally reshaping our brains on a biological level. So that's our battle plan in the war for our souls. Prayer, community, and story. But what happens when the battle doesn't seem to work? What happens when... Things don't go our way, even though we've prayed, we've engaged with others in community, we've reminded ourselves of the story of God. Well, first, it's good to know that we're not alone. Although the Israelites defeated Amalekites that day, if we fast forward to Numbers 13 and 14, we see them meet the Amalekites again. Only this time they lose the battle. They don't only lose the battle, but this forces them away from the promised land to wander in the desert for another 38 years. And so I have to be honest with you, the Christian life of following Jesus is not one of upward mobility. As Christians, our life trajectory is not up and to the right. We will have our own wilderness moments. We will experience unanswered prayer, questions, doubts, and silence. Sometimes it will feel like God doesn't care about us and that he's left us. We will not always experience victory just because we pray. And that's okay. Because our ultimate hope isn't in victory in this life, but in the ultimate victory that Christ has already secured over the spiritual forces of darkness and sin and death. All of our suffering in this life is temporary because of our hope in Jesus. And this will look different for every single one of us in this room this morning. Why is it that some people experience victory while others experience loss as Christians? In 2017 or 2018, there was a family that attended Epicos, and we got the call one day that the husband had been placed in a drug-induced coma due to a a lung infection of some sort. And I remember going with some of the pastors, some of the elders at Epicos to be with the family, be with the the wife, and, and pray with them, pray for them, and anoint his head with oil. And for about two to three months, every day, we were waiting for the call or the text, and eventually we got it that he had woken up. And he began the slow recovery process, and now he is happy and alive and healthy and able to be there for his wife and his children. Why is it that this man survived while my friends lost their two sons under the age of one? I don't know. I genuinely don't have a good answer for that. Other than to say that we live in the now and not yet, we catch glimpses of heaven while still, be subjected, while still being subjected to death as a result of living in a fallen world. What I do know is that both families placed their ultimate trust in Jesus. In his wanting, having won the cosmic battle, and they expressed it through prayer, community, and story. So does this mean that we should just sit idly by? I don't think it does. If the Israelites' battle with the Amalekites is representative of the original battle in Genesis 3 between God and Satan, and the Israelites took action alongside God against their enemy, then we are to do the same. 
In our passage this morning, God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. But if we jump ahead to Deuteronomy 25, 19, we will see that the Israelites would join God in taking care of the Amalekites. Take a look at verse 19 in Deuteronomy 25. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Christ has secured our victory, and we join him in the fight against the cosmic forces of darkness. We fight not for victory, but from victory. We join God because as we read in Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians 2.15, he, being Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Moses and the Israelites won the battle because of dependence on God expressed through prayer and the holding up of the wooden staff as God's judgment against the Amalekites. Jesus was held up on another piece of wood, executing God's judgment over sin and death and the spiritual forces of darkness. Christ has secured our victory. We are to simply walk in it. And we walk in that victory by continuing the battle plan. So, with Jesus' victory on the cross as our foundation, let's orient our lives around these three things. Number one, being with God through prayer. How is God asking you to grow in your prayer life? Number two, being with other believers through community. Have you invited other people in to lift you up? Number three, knowing the biblical story that we're a part of. How can you grow in your knowledge of the redemptive arc of the entire Bible? Regardless of what attacks and hardships come at us, if we allow these three things to have their way in us, we will develop a persevering trust in our God. My friends that lost both their sons and two parents are still walking with Jesus. Through wailing prayer, surrounding themselves with the support of their community and knowing the biblical story that they're a part of, they held on to God in the belief that he can be trusted, not giving in to the lie that God, of Satan that God cannot be trusted. And even though they now have a happy and healthy little girl, they still look forward to the day that they will see both of their sons. If today's message stirred something within you and you would like prayer, I encourage you, after service, there are men and women that will be up here at the front. Please take advantage of receiving prayer from them. We have men and women who would love to do that for you. But to close, I want to invite us to take the posture of Moses in prayer. We can stay seated for this, but I want to give us 30 seconds to sit with our arms lifted, however you're comfortable, holding our life before God, asking him to do with it as he will, allowing our bodily posture to ready our hearts. I'll conclude with a prayer, and I just want to encourage you to carry that same posture into our last worship song this morning. Let's take 30 seconds. Father, I thank you that you have written us into your story. 
thank you that because of your son's death on the cross and his resurrection that sin and death and darkness don't, do, no longer have a hold on us. And that we have new life in Christ and we can walk in that new life. So Holy Spirit, would you please empower us to live the life that we already have, to become who we already are. And may we express that through engaging in prayer, expressing our dependence on you, walking in community with other like-minded believers, and knowing, telling, and retelling the story that we're a part of. May we be your hands and feet to the world around us. May your kingdom go forth from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.